Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 44, The Yoga of Herbs, Part 1, with Eric Joseph Lewis. In this episode, we speak with Eric about how he got interested in plants when he found himself living in a wild blueberry patch, about the influence of Frank Cook, about his experiment with papaya seeds and how he basically used them as a birth control, as a male birth control for himself. We get into depth on that, which is really interesting. We also talk about some of his favorite plants. This is part one of the interview, and we'll have part two shortly. As always, you can support us at patreon.com slash plantcunning by sharing these episodes with your friends and rating us and liking us on iTunes and all those places. Okay, well, I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, welcome Eric Joseph Lewis to the Plant Cunning Podcast. How are you today, Eric? Doing great, doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Yeah, this is going to be a really interesting conversation. So uh, you're a, a basically a, an educator, a plant propagator, a nurseryman, and uh, an experimenter, a general all-around plant guy. Um, how, what, what got you onto the plant path? Well, um, initially, I was just kind of really wanting to retreat into the forest and kind of dedicate more of my time to like meditation and yoga and studying scriptures and doing mantras and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I was living yeah. in the woods in a tent and um, I was really interested in communal living and creating sustainable communities at the time. And I hadn't really given much thought to the plants at that time, but I was really focused on like natural building and wanting to learn all about the natural building. I think mostly because I was homeless. So it was like, okay, first priority, figure out where I'm going to live. Um, <laughs> Sense. <laughs> and so I was going to go uh, move from the woods to this intentional community here in Maryland called Heathcote and spend a month there kind of volunteering in their permaculture gardening program kind of thing and learn about natural building because they have a straw bale house that was under construction at the time and uh, my buddy came out to help me break down camp my good friend uh, Davey Rogner from the Harvest Collective and as we're breaking down the tent he goes hey Eric did you know that you're living in a blueberry patch and I was like, what? These are blueberries? He was like, yeah, all of these plants around you are a bunch of low bush blueberries. I don't know a lot about plants, but I know that these are low bush blueberries. And in the summertime, they produce little berries that you can eat. And that, wow. that just blew my mind. Yeah, that's how I felt. I was like, wow, there's free food in the forest. What? <laughs> yes, yeah. free food in the woods. And then I was like, well, what else can I eat out here? And so, you know, at first I kind of went down that path of like, oh, you know, what's its name and can I eat it? And how can I use this plant and that plant? And what's it good for? And, you know, are there any poisonous lookalikes and just totally utilitarian kind of vibe? Um, 
but that only lasted about a month. And I came across some videos from Frank Cook on YouTube and he like put the pieces together for me by pointing out that like plants are people and this is a relationship and we're, you know, in this like sacred communion with the plants and they support us and everything. And that, that shifted it all for me. And then I realized that, you know, connecting with plants is just as much an aspect of yoga as, you know, pranayama and, you know, the pratyahara and all the meditations and mantras and everything else. So, yeah, wow. that's really what got me into it. And then I was like, head first, I'm all in. Mm. So it came right back around to, you know, first, like doing the, the path of retreat and renunciation and then going into plants and then bringing it back around to that spiritual uh, impetus in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was kind of that was kind of the flow of it. And when I realized that, I realized, oh, this is my life path. This is my mission on this planet. Is like I already knew at like that point, I was like, okay, my purpose on this earth is to bring more love, bliss, and abundance into the experience of all beings. And then when that piece, like when Frank kind of through his videos and audio recordings, I never actually got to meet him. But um, when when that piece of the puzzle got incorporated, I realized that my means to accomplish that goal is uh, deepening the relationship between people and plants, you know? Yeah. yeah, for sure. It's yeah. Frank Cook is one of um, the people that we've talked about before in the podcast with Mark Williams, um, one of our first episodes, and he was a primary teacher of him as well. It seems like he was just like such a magical being. I wish I had the chance to meet him, too. But- yeah, I remember being so sad. I, was, I actually figured that out at Heathcote. You know, I was like maybe a month into like really deep diving on plants like I would work in the garden every day for about four or five hours and then I would walk around in the woods for like four or five hours Mm. and then after everybody would go to sleep I would go up to the library and spend like three hours a night on the internet just like watching all of the different youtube videos about wild edible plants that i could find and (laughs) just doing as much online research as i could and when i found frank i was like oh my god this This is my teacher this is the dude right and Mm -hmm. i uh i learned that he would go to the rainbow gatherings and so i resolved at that point i was like all right the rainbow gatherings in a month and a half I am going to make it a priority to get to this rainbow gathering. I'm going to find this brother and I'm going to follow him around for as long as he will let me. (laughs) (laughs) And then like, I don't know, maybe a few weeks later, I saw the obituary and I was like, no, I was like Um, so devastated. That's still one of the saddest moments. I think of this lifetime for me was like coming to terms with like knowing that I wouldn't even get to meet him in person but Mm. it's all good he's been a great presence in my life anyway and just like the knowledge that he shared has been so powerful and transformative so I feel like you know he's a part of my heart anyway yeah for sure so did you end up going to the rainbow gathering I sure did 2010 (laughs) in Pennsylvania it was my first gathering 
went on my first plant walk with um uh avid often and uh and stevie soros and um got to meet a bunch of great friends from the green path there chad and Dee and patrick ironwood and marissa and like so many great folks i first connected with at that gathering so cool yeah it's a great place to meet meet folks like that and to get to know plants around the country because the rainbow yeah. gathering is going to different places every year and i've learned so much traveling around um at rainbow gatherings going on plant walks and and learning it's really cool yeah, remember my first rainbow gathering was in vermont and i'm met uh mark williams and he had they they all had these lists of like every single plant that was that existed in, in that, vermont yeah, yeah in the green mountains <laughs> so cool yeah th- that, those plant walks were really really interesting and so you teach plant you do plant walks now right as a teacher right oh yeah pretty much every weekend cool. um since like i i got started in like 2014 um doing like my very first plant walks and then by 2016, I felt comfortable enough that I, was, I just dedicated myself to it. And yeah, now that's kind of my main, my main thing is every weekend I do plant walks, mostly by donation, um, doing permaculture design courses and mushroom walks and like, you know, all the things now, but um, still plant walks are my, my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, plant walks are amazing. It's a great way to get people like involved. It's like using all of your senses. You're moving around through the woods or the field. You're smelling and seeing and and like really experiencing it. And seeing the plants in their natural habitat too, I think is so crucial because it's really, you can't really take the plant outside of where it's growing. I mean, you can put it in a garden or mm. so on, but like to really see it in its natural ecosystem is like, tells you a lot about the plant. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, it's I like something uh, Mark says, botany is a full contact sport, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love that, for sure. And um, it kind of reminds me of something I saw on your nursery website, the Plant Path Nursery website. Your your motto is each one teach 10. Yep, yep. Really that's, like the, that. that's the motto. I mean, that's the you know, I, I had always grown up hearing the each one teach one uh-huh. saying, and then I thought about it and I'm like, now nah, we need to take it to another level. We need to go like <laughs> each one teach 10. And then one day I was sitting around thinking about it. And I realized like, if, if I teach 10 people and they teach 10 people and they teach 10 people each year, mm-hmm. um, then that's exponential growth. So mm. one, to the 10th power that would be 10 years and one to the 10th power is one with 10 zeros behind it that's 10 billion people in a decade we can achieve world domination yes <laughs> the plant people yeah plant people <laughs> will take over the earth and then you know solving all the problems will be easy yeah i love that that's a really cool like thought experiment visualizing like all those zeros and all those plant people yeah, heck yeah. Gives me a lot of hope, that's for sure. Yeah. So who have been some of your other teachers? Have you been mostly like an autodidact or have you like, I mean, do you take a permaculture design course? Um, yeah. Like, like courses? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. I took um, a PDC with Wayne Wiseman back in 2013. Um, you know, once I like realized like, oh, plants are the way I'm just gonna like spend all my time with plant people, you know, I started kind of just like, you know, tracking down as many of Frank's friends and teachers as I could, like, wow. you know, really still kind of feeling like this deep connection and uh, desire to like kind of follow his footsteps in some ways. Um, and I happened to be living in Maryland, uh, 20 minutes from Jim Duke. So I got to spend a lot of time with Jim, you know, and was fortunate enough to meet him at the point when he was still doing like a plant walk or two a year for the first couple years that I knew him. And even after that, he was still having the jam sessions every Wednesday night for some years and would come and hang out and have Duke soup with us on the patio. And, cool. um, you know, got to like hang out with him a lot over, you know, the first six or seven years of my plant journey. And that was really, really incredible. And, uh, you know, Rainbow Gatherings, hanging out with Mark Williams has been another major teacher and influence in my life and in my path and journey. Um, I've gotten to take some walks with uh, Seven Song wherever I can, you know, when he's teaching at Rainbow or at the Florida Earth Skills Gathering. Mm. Um, one of my first, like, quote unquote, official plant walks, if you will um at the uh falling leaves rendezvous in 2010 was with doug elliott and um he's a good friend now him and yana and spend as much time with them as i can and um yeah you know just kind of wandering around i got to spend like a month with joe hollis one year i think that oh, was like nice. 13 yeah, that was super cool. He's kind of a hermit, so it was more like just spending time in his library and get to like <laughs> ask him questions for like 40 minutes a night or an hour a night while we're all eating dinner. It's like, here's this little greenhorn. Let me pester you and poke you and ask you all the questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's he's such a great uh interesting fellow. We interviewed him too uh, in the winter and uh he, he was kind of a little hard of hearing, but it was, it was, it was kind of a pretty, like a archetypical relationship, almost like the, the older, like Kermit type, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> but he's got uh -huh. such a wealth of knowledge and his, uh, his videos are so great mm -hmm. too. I have not yet met him, but he's, yeah, it's been, you know, learning from him just by the videos has been really great. Yeah, definitely. He's great. Andy Furk is another great plant teacher that he's like, He's one of my best friends. I love that brother. He's so fantastic. He's like my hero, Andy Furk. I don't know if y'all know him, but he's down in uh, Arcadia, Florida, getting ready to make the move to Wales. Um, oh. Yeah, super amazing brother. My buddy, uh, Zach Elfers, is always like dropping incredible knowledge on me. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's amazing. Dale Hendricks, like just so many people you know everywhere I go I'll ask just ask a million questions <laughs> yeah. I feel like you know everybody's got something to teach so I do as much as I can to learn something from everybody mm -hmm. kind of complicates that each one teach 10 
thing though <laughs> everyone's teaching each other and sharing in like a, a mycorrhizal network of of teaching yeah exactly and that's more so that's more so the heart of that message is like each one get another person on board each year you know get another person integrated into this green path get another 10 people you know welcome them into the tribe into the family and and let's expand this movement you know mm-hmm. yeah for sure mm-hmm. so yeah uh so one of the interesting things that i've seen you uh talk about lately is your experiment with papaya seed as birth control uh-huh. <laughs> could you tell us a little bit about that what like what was the experiment for you so I guess um that I think that started what was it like probably back in the winter of uh of 2012 I went down to um you know I started snowboarding in uh January of 2011 um and uh the following year because florida earth skills once florida earth skills started and i realized like holy shit i live in a tent why do i still do the (laughs) winter thing that's stupid dude just roll up your tent and go south (laughs) (laughs) it just made so much sense so the following year uh i went down in december um so for the the winter uh late winter of 2011 2012 I think it was I went down to the Kriya Yoga Ashram in Homestead and uh when I was down there we're like eating all of the I I was I had this amazing curry dish that I thought was potatoes and they were like no baba that is not the potatoes that is green papaya and I was like what the heck dude green papayas taste like potatoes I love papayas now. And so like as a vegetable, I started really falling in love with the papaya and that made me want to research it more and hanging out with Jim Duke. My first move with any plant was now to look up the Latin binomial and followed by scholarly. And it was before I knew about Google Scholar as a search engine. But so I would just like search you know, Karika papaya scholarly articles and see what comes up. Um, because one of the babas was telling me that they use uh, papaya for antiparasitic. And I was like, wow, that's cool. So it's got some medicinal qualities. Let me dive deeper into this, friend, and see what's going on here. And one of the first scholarly articles I came across was a study on rats where they induced uh, temporary azoospermia, which is like basically, uh, n- you know, zero sperm count or uh, non-sperm motility, like uh, sperm that can't swim. And they were able to do that in 90 days with a chloroform extract of papaya seed. And so... At the time, one of my biggest fears was like making a baby accidentally, you know? So yeah. <laughs> I was like, huh, 
they seem pretty safe. So I started like looking into toxicity and I didn't see much in the way of toxicity. So that was good. And I saw reports of people using the papaya seeds for sometimes uh, more than a year at a time for uh, persistent parasites or viruses. Um, and sometimes people using them tonically for long periods of time as a uh, liver cleanser and digestive aid. And so I'm like, all right, so here's a seed that has the potential to make me infertile. If nothing else, it's going to help my digestion and improve my liver function. I'm not seeing much in the way of toxicity. There's a little bit of lectins in there, but even the, the lectins, the indigestible plant proteins are immunomodulatory they're not like harmful or impeding the absorption of protein like many other lectins do so i was i said all right i'm gonna go for it and i started just eating a little handful okay um so yeah not a handful uh but more like just like a little somewhere between a half teaspoon and a tablespoon per day. Okay. And that's either frozen or fresh. And um, I continued that for, I don't know, uh, it's probably three years or something. I ended up getting like insurance, like health and health insurance, like through the Affordable Care Act or whatever back in, 2015 or 16 something like that it was whenever they were threatening to like fine you if you don't get it and I was like yeah. man I don't want to get a fine that's stupid yeah so I got it and then I went in for a physical and then I was like hey wait a second maybe I can ask them about like getting myself tested to see if this is actually working oh cool and so sure enough I got tested and my sperm count was, uh, or my semen motility was less than 1%. Wow. And so I was like, wow, it worked. <laughs> I so, basically made myself infertile. That's amazing. So what is the average uh, sperm motility? Uh, it's supposed to be above 40 if you want to conceive children. I think average is between 40 and 60% motility. Okay. Wow. And so, so did you test it when you got off the papaya seed too, if it went back up again yeah so so then uh at some point or another i don't know what was it 2016 2017 maybe i forget exactly the time i'm not great with temporal perception <laughs> um but uh yeah i i took a break for uh 6 months and got tested and my sperm motility went up to 9%. Um, and then I was like, not very encouraged by those results. So I waited another six months and got tested again. And it actually went down to 7%. And I was like, dang, this is I maybe I might have made myself sterile doing this. And I was a little nervous. But yeah. then I waited, uh, I waited another two years. And um, just got tested recently another time, and uh, it's back up to 40%. Wow. So, 
yeah, it kind of went back to normal. Now, this is, of course, all really bad science because I never got a baseline and didn't get tested in the early stages of it to see like where the actual drop off occurred and, mm. you know, that sort of thing. But hey, you know, I didn't make any babies. So I say <laughs> successful experiment. I didn't make any babies and I didn't make myself sterile. Yeah. So yeah. I think a that's win. a win. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. also a good stepping off point for people to do more uh, rigorous experiments too yeah exactly and i want i really hope that more people will get on board with this especially people who are like you know pretty set on not having kids or they've already had all the kids that they want and they're leaning towards vasectomy or whatever they could do this for a little while and and see what happens you know get some good data sets over the course of three months six months one year whatever and of course pre-papaya seed as well so that we can get a better mm -hmm. idea yeah and this really brings into that into the equation the role of the citizen scientist you know it's it seems like nowadays we're just expected to listen to what the uh the scientists who are you know <laughs> basically paid for by giant corporations or the government to tell us what is what is right and what is wrong, you know, kind of like a religious authority, but we can actually do experiment. We can use the scientific method ourselves. We mm -hmm. can, you know, compare notes with other citizen scientists and do experiments. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need a lot more of that. That's definitely yeah. one of the things that I'm a big fan of. I was listening to um, a doctor the other day. I think it was like Sten Ekberg or whatever. I'm really into like learning all about longevity and diet and exercise and stuff. And um, I don't know, I was listening to one of these podcasts or doctors and uh, they were saying that 90% of, uh, you know, clinical trials and research that um, gets confirmed that has like a positive result gets published. And as much as 80% of the studies that have a negative result uh, don't get published, which is to say like, you know, when um, the theory is, is disproven or, you know, data that doesn't support the theory is found, it ends up in the trash pile. And so we don't even get to learn from a lot of the scientific rigor that's going on. And I think that's a huge disservice to us on the level of understanding what's yeah, actually that's, happening. That's not right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like a lot of these, you know, are skewed or serve, serve certain purposes. Uh, right. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of part of what, what's happening with the, uh, the lack of, of trust in these authorities these days, you know, it's because they've kind of abused that authority. Absolutely. And then there's like the corporate money involved in everything. Yeah. And, and, you know, in order to carry out a clinical trial, like a double blind placebo controlled clinical trial, you're talking millions of dollars. And, yeah. and like, I don't know, I really want to see a day and age where uh, we have just community labs in yes. our eco villages. You know, there's like, <laughs> Like that, I love this idea of like 
the juxtaposition of like an earthen structure with a scanning electron micrograph inside of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, oh, like, yes. We like analyze our soil and our blood and, you know, yeah. take the take the best cultivars of uh, pawpaws and analyze them for total anonosin content and total, yeah. you know, neurotoxic acetogenin content and then crossbreed the ones with the lowest acetogenins and breed into existence a pawpaw that's not neurotoxic at all, you know? Mm. Yeah, that's really important. I mean, yeah. Do, do you think you could tell our listeners a little bit about pawpaws and uh, neurotoxins? Because th- th- that's a fruit that's becoming very, very popular, um, which was not popular for a long, you know, for a long time. Um, but I mean, it's a really wonderful fruit. You know, it's native to the Eastern U.S. It's large, delicious, it's delicious. Yeah, um, but there are also some downsides. Uh, do, do, yeah, do you think you could t- tell our listeners about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my good buddies, uh, Mike Judd, is a huge pawpaw enthusiast, and he just wrote an awesome book uh, called "For the Love of Pawpaws." Mm-hmm. And I, I really do think that they are an incredible fruit and well worthy of cultivation and um, increasing their popularity dramatically. I mean, you know, I think it would be foolish for us to just like totally omit a food because of some toxin, because if we did that, there wouldn't be anything left to eat. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. You know, cause yeah. like, I like, uh, there's this one doctor, Stephen Gundry, and he's always saying, you know, contrary to popular opinion, plants do not want to be eaten. They have these defense mechanisms. They all contain phytates and oxalates and lectins and, uh, you know, various inflammatory compounds and all, all kinds of things. And so with pawpaws, uh, the real issue is um, neurotoxic acetogenins. And I have no idea what that means. I just memorized this stuff so I can be a good parrot. And maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe one day meet somebody who's like uh, really into like uh, chemistry or whatever, like cellular, cellular chemistry and tell me what's, what it actually means. Um, but basically it's this neurotoxic compound. And um, when they did an epidemiological study in the Caribbean island of Guadalupe and found that people who ate large amounts of Ananaceae family fruits, custard apple family fruits, um, they found that they had higher incidence of Alzheimer's, dementia, and other neurodegenerative diseases. They found that the onset was earlier and the progression of the disease was uh, accelerated. And mm. so, you know, that, that gives me a little bit of pause right there. Um, but also keep in mind that in Guadalupe, they have Rolinia, Cherimoya, Soursop, Guanabana, like, you know, go down the list of like dozens of custard apple or, you know, various uh, Ananaceae family fruits. So they could eat a lot more of them. They could probably be eating them fresh off of the trees 10 months out of the year and every day of their lives, you know, 
if they have some forms of storage for them. So I think yeah. the the mighty pawpaw asamina triloba is uh, if we eat it in its natural context of like, okay, it's out from like, you know, maybe mid August on the earliest end of the season into like late September on the latest end of the season, you know, then it's not how big of a problem is it going to be if we have like a couple fruits a week in that window. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I don't think it's a problem personally. And yeah. I still love, love some pawpaw coconut ice cream, you know, <laughs> but I'm not going out of my way to stock my refrigerator full of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I feel about the same way. I, I do gorge a little bit in, in pawpaw season, <laughs> uh, but I'm not like, I'm also, I'm not like freezing a bunch of it and using it every day of the year. Um, kind of just some of it, some, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, pawpaw lassi. Yeah. Pawpaw lassi. Yeah. There you go. It's like a, it's a little treat, you know, yeah. here and there we, we enjoy a little treat and it's great. Right. And- I mean, in general, I'm not a huge proponent of fruit because uh, most fruit, half of the sugar in it, I mean, for one, it's super high in sugar. So it right. spikes insulin, spikes blood glucose. Mm-hmm. Both of those um, phenomenons are linked to accelerated aging. Um, and then on top of that, half of the sugar in fruits is from fructose, uh-huh. uh, which is a simple sugar that our body can't process our cells can't use it our cells can only use glucose and so when our body encounters fructose all of it has to be processed by the liver and so you know excessive amounts of fruit further taxes the liver i'm like if i'm gonna stress my liver out i want to get a little buzz out of the deal or something (laughs) (laughs) yeah i guess so some fermented fruits i see yeah, yeah, fermented <laughs> fruits. I get a little bit of that. And then you get some of the B complex vitamins in there and a little probiotic, prebiotic, a little vasodilation effect. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So makes sense to me. So, what are some of your uh, favorite plants to work with, and especially food plants? Food plants. Uh, <laughs> I would say number one and two. Gosh, it's tough. Oh man, it's tough. But definitely <laughs> top top a hundred, you know. <laughs> top a hundred, yeah, yeah, my top a hundred. Definitely very near the top of the list, if not the top of the list for me in this bioregion is stinging nettle. Oh yeah, Erica yeah. I eat a lot of that. I eat a lot of the cooked greens. I make a lot of pesto. I dehydrate it and make green powder and sprinkle it on everything. Um, Yeah, I I really love that one. It's high protein. It's uh, loaded with great nutrients and minerals. It grows just about anywhere. You can start harvesting in late March all the way through until early January here in the mid-Atlantic. If you give it some protection, it'll go through most of the winter. And uh so what about the silica? Because I've, I've heard that you're not really supposed to eat it when it starts flowering, you know, like because there, there's too high of a silica content. Yeah, I've heard that as well. And so what I do is I just don't let it flower. If you stay wow. on top of your harvest, it never gets a chance to flower. You yeah. just keep harvesting like, you know, every two weeks through the summer and it just gets bushier and bushier and 
um, especially in the shade, keeping it in the shade, it slows it down a good bit. And so that's the other thing I love about it is, you know, in permaculture, there's this concept or principle of valuing the edges and valuing the marginal lands. And so stinging mm -hmm. nettle is great for that because it's this early successional weedy plant that will totally colonize the edges. It'll colonize areas that are too wet for other plants to grow. It'll tolerate extreme drought. Um, mm. And so I can keep it in a shady spot where other things won't do as well and just keep harvesting every two, every couple weeks. Now, that being said, um, Doug Elliott has a friend who has been harvesting nettles for 60 years and he harvests it even after it goes to seed and harvests lots of it, he says, and doesn't have any problems with it. So that's another yeah. spot where I really feel like we need these labs um, to get established so that uh, we can measure the silicate content and then, okay, let's eat the silicates and then let's measure the silicates in our urine and see like, okay, is it getting processed out by the kidneys? Is it, you know, what kind of issues does that actually cause in the body, if any? Yeah, yeah. And some of these issues, I mean, can take a while to manifest too. But I mean, if yeah, you've been absolutely. harvesting for 60 years or, you know, that's a pretty long time. That's <laughs> <laughs> a real long time. And, and Doug says he's fit as a fiddle. So I don't know. Who knows? Um, and it's one of these things where it's like, yeah, we need, we need deeper understanding because, you know, people hear something and then, you know, one person hears it from their expert and their expert says, this is the way it is. And then that expert says it to a conference full of experts. And then everybody in the conference goes on repeating it. And next thing you know, we've got this echo chamber that's um, founded on faulty science, you know? Yeah, that happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I love nettles. I love uh, another one of my all time favorites, especially for this bioregion is the hazelnut. I love hazelnuts. I think that they are probably the number one food for the future. If I had to like name one plant to like really take over the temperate part of the world, it would be hazelnut, especially for the sake of agriculture. I mean, yeah. they're, they're 2,800 calories per pound, um, really great flavor. They're high fat content. And that fat is mostly uh, omega-9 monounsaturated fat, um, which is uh, oleic acid. And oleic acid activates sirtuins, which are these longevity genes. And those genes will turn on and turn off other genes to help promote health and well-being. Um, you know, omega-9 fat, uh, oleates and oleic acid are, uh, the basis for, or, you know, the, the primary basis for the white adipose tissue in our bodies, 68 to 72% of our white adipose tissue, which is like our storage fat is comprised of this oleic acid. And so when we take in fat in the form that our body naturally wants to store it, I think that's super wise. I'm really into like 
helping my body to run on fat as much as possible. You yeah, know, I, yeah. I cycle in and out of ketosis, but um, I really want to be well fat. I really want to be very well fat adapted so that my body's producing these ketones. The anti-inflammatory effects of that are incredible. And um, hazelnuts could be a major contributor in that regard. And then on top of that, just like the ecological role that they play, being a medium-sized shrub, a small to medium-sized shrub in the birch family. Uh, they've got relationships with over 400 different insects. They sequester incredible amounts of carbon. Um, their wood is a high-density wood that would be excellent for fuel wood. Mm. Uh, they're yeah. easy to grow. They tolerate all kinds of different conditions. Um, you can get nuts from them within three years from seed to a uh, bush producing nuts can be as little as three years. They reach a point of like break even in commercial orchards out West is like, I think year eight and they become extremely profitable by year 12. So like, this is a pretty, that's a pretty fast turnaround for a tree crop. And yeah. yeah compared to like a walnut or like a, yeah, a hickory. <laughs> right. Or even a chestnut, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and then on top of that, you look at their productivity, they could compete with corn. They're competitive with corn on their level of productivity. Mm -hmm. If you look mm -hmm. at in the Willamette Valley in Oregon, um, where most of the commercial cultivation is going on in the U S um, they're growing filberts. So they're doing uh, Corillus avelina, the European hazelnut. And uh, they're averaging 1,500 to 4,000 pounds per acre, right? Wow. So now high yields for corn are eight to 10,000 pounds per acre. So it's less than half. But when you figure that corn is... 1450 calories per pound and and hazelnuts are 2800 calories per pound they're almost twice the calorie density and it's much higher quality calories right so at that fat, level yeah fat instead yeah. of carbs yeah exactly fat instead of carbs on top of it all so and then like mark shepherd like uh making biodiesel with hazelnuts and then you can <laughs> use that for your farm equipment Right. Totally. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily want to see them turned into biodiesel because it's <laughs> such a high quality food, but yeah. And yeah. on top of that, I think that, you know, um, figuring out algae cultivation, small to medium scale algae cultivation and processing would be the better long-term bet in that yeah. regard, because, you know, you look at algae on a, on a one acre, section of land the highest oil producing land plant is palm oil which you know it can be around 500 gallons per acre or something in that neighborhood um algaes can produce five to fifteen thousand gallons per acre wow yeah it's like order of magnitude difference so i think that's definitely the way to go and, and on top of that, some species like chlorella, for example, we could press the oil out of it and then still get the minerals 
you know, yeah. and the chelation, the chelators out of it. So there's the oil and then the food product is still available there. That's really cool. Yeah, so hazelnuts excite the bejesus out of me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Apparently, yeah. I mean, <laughs> with good reason. Yeah, they're amazing. And then their flavor is awesome. Like, come yeah. on, who doesn't love a hazelnut? Yeah, hazelnut right. milk. Have y'all ever had that like Elmhurst hazelnut milk? No. no For any vegans, fancy. if you've got any vegans listening to this podcast right now, you need to like pause the podcast or plug in your headphones and go to the health food store and find <laughs> Elmhurst hazelnut milk. That stuff is so good. It's like the thickest, creamiest, fattiest, thousand times better than almond milk mm. and, and doesn't require 1600 gallons of water per pound from a yeah. already suffering aquifer to support them. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, California is pretty screwed right now as far as water goes and that's where most of our almonds come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, makes absolutely. sense. Absolutely, and it, it has the built-in fat. You know, like compared to like oat milk, which is I I, I kind of like as far as the alternative milks go. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to add add oil to it for it to be fat, but like hazelnut, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah.